You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thanks, Adam. Um, uh, so we'll be reading today from Acts 15. Um, do strap in because it is a bit of a longer one. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. 
So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessings of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Thanks a bit. Uh, as is usual, the drill around DPC, there's an outline of my sermon on the online welcome card. Uh, if you haven't tracked that down, you can get it via the Sundays tab on our church website. Uh, so if a, a kind of outline of what I'm going to say might be helpful for you, uh, that's where it is. Be great if you could have Acts chapter 15 open. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, well, who am I really uh, to have the privilege and responsibility to um, open your word and uh, teach it, preach it to your people? Uh, Father, please, um, please take me up in all my weaknesses and limitations and use me to display your power and glory. And we pray, Father, the power and glory of Christ your Son too. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, some details really do matter. Uh, I'm sure uh, you've been discussing that a little uh, in the little pause that we had before. Now, I know as Presbyterians, sometimes we've got a bit of a reputation for being overly anal, uh, perhaps a little rigid about details. And so you might be sitting there thinking, well, of course, a Presbyterian minister is going to say details matter. But there are situations where details really do matter. Uh, one time, many years ago, uh, Gabby and I were hiking up on the Bogong High Plains. Uh, we'd uh, gone up to the summit of Mount Bogong and we decided, look, we're going to come down a different spur. And so we walked along the ridge uh, and I, you know, I'd had the navigation responsibilities all day and I was extremely confident that I would see this other spur that we had to go down. Of course, I didn't look at the map at all and we ended up six kilometres out of our way uh, one, and I was thinking, gee, that spur, see, I would have thought it would have come by now. Anyway, uh, needless to say, Gabby wasn't that happy that I'd added 12 kilometres uh, to our hike for that day. I can tell you, I realised in that moment that some details matter. It's important to be precise and accurate about some things. Likewise, when I was a kid, uh, one day, I, I grew up in Bendigo, one day my parents decided, I think it was probably a Labor Day public holiday, uh, we were going up to Echuca for a barbecue. We drove up to Echuca, just coming into the town of Echuca, we had really quite a big car accident. Uh, fortunately, no one was seriously hurt, but it was one of those situations where uh, kind of lookers-on called the police and ambulances came. It was pretty exciting for me. I think I was in about grade four. So I was pretty pumped to get a ride in the ambulance to the hospital. And uh, anyway, my dad had quite a bad pain in his neck. And now this is not a bad rap on a Chuka hospital forever. 
But Echuca Hospital took x-rays of Dad's neck, gave him the all clear. A few days later, though, back in Bendigo, he still had this pain in his neck. Went to the Bendigo Hospital, took more x-rays. They discovered that Dad actually had two broken vertebrae in his neck. And so for that few-day period, he was actually risking quite serious injury. Now, that's just a small detail, isn't it? But it kind of really matters. There are some situations where it's fine to kind of say details, schmetails, or she'll be right, or near enough's good enough, you know, let's just roll with the flow. But there are other situations where it's important to be really accurate and precise and clear. And what we see in today's passage from Acts chapter 15 is that the truth of the gospel is one of those things, one of those things that you really want to have razor-sharp clarity on. Because preserving gospel clarity protects gospel community. That's my kind of big idea for Acts chapter 15. Preserving gospel clarity protects gospel community. Or if you've got the welcome card open, you might see there's a slightly sort of expanded big idea on that. It's preserving gospel clarity uh, as needed through gospel councils, like we see here in Acts 15. Uh, Protects gospel community, but gospel community can still break. That's the big idea. So let's take a look first at verses 1 to 3. If you've got your Bible open, uh, you'll see there in verses 1 to 3 a gospel distortion that threatens gospel community. Have a look at verse 1. Luke says, uh, Certain people came down uh, from Judea to Antioch, the church in Antioch, uh, and they were teaching the believers there uh, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. If you scan down to verse 5, it seems pretty likely that these certain people who came down from Judea are new Christians, Jewish Christians, who'd previously belonged to the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a particular kind of sect within first century Judaism. You might have heard about them before. They come up a fair bit in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. And they're particularly known for being very strict about things like circumcision and observing God's law, which fits with what they're teaching here, doesn't it? With their focus on circumcision and the importance of obeying God's law. You see, from the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, you can read this later on, the outward physical sign of being a member of God's people was to be circumcised, at least for Jewish male babies who had to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. That requirement came up first in Genesis 17, and it was put down in law, in the laws that God gave to Moses, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. As I just said, circumcision was the outward physical sign of belonging to the Jews, the people of Israel, the people that God had kind of covenanted with or bound himself to by making promises to them. So now these people are coming down from Judea to Antioch and they're saying to these new Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians who would never have been circumcised, they're saying to him, if you, to them rather, if you really want to be saved, it's not enough just to trust in Jesus. You also have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised and observe these outward traditions of being a part of God's people. It's a dangerous distortion of the gospel. 
We might think, well, that's not that big a deal, just a small little tweak. But the details matter. It's saying that simply trusting in the death of Jesus and the cross in your place for your sins, that is not enough to be saved. It's saying, in fact, it's a little bit more sinister than that, isn't it? It's basically racism or nationalism. I don't know what term you want to put on it. Saying God's grace and mercy towards sinful and broken people, it really only extends to Jewish people. So if you really want to be sure that you're accepted by God and his people, yes, you've got to trust in Jesus. These teachers wouldn't deny that. But also, you have to become Jewish. Because that's where you'll find God's grace and mercy. Well, you can imagine that this uh, really threatened to drive a wedge through the early church between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, if you've read the previous chapters, they've been going about their ministry, seeing a whole lot of non-Jewish people, uncircumcised people, uh, believing the gospel, receiving God's spirit. Uh, So they are ropeable when they hear about these teachers. Take a look in verse 2. Luke says, uh, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with these teachers who'd come down from Judea. It's a pretty intense argument. Literally, it says here, uh, not a small dispute. It's a big one, right? It's an intense argument. But what's interesting, notice that even though emotions are running high, even though it seems pretty clear to Paul and Barnabas that what these teachers are saying is wrong, they don't presume to be able to make a sort of authoritative declaration about this distortion of the gospel all by themselves. They don't do that, do they? Despite the emotions, despite the anger, they seem to recognise that this is a question that really should be considered by a whole group of leaders, not just them. That's significant. So in the rest of verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are appointed by the church in Antioch along with some other believers uh, and they go up to Jerusalem uh, to see the apostles and elders there uh, so that together they can consider this question. And now you'll be relieved to know uh, that this Acts chapter 15 isn't a passage that's mainly about Presbyterian church government. Uh, So I'm not going to kind of switch gears to a big lecture about Presbyterianism now. I'm sure you'll be excited about that. Uh, But when I was deciding whether I wanted to nail my colours to the mast and become a Presbyterian minister, uh, this was a passage that encouraged me a bit. Because like in this passage, if the Presbyterian church is confronted with a key question of doctrine or practice, uh, the matter isn't decided by a local pastor or a local bishop or, or even a pope, a single person. The matter is decided by a whole group of people. Why? Because it's recognised that on balance, if you get a whole group of people together and slow down to do that, then you're more likely to come up with a wise and godly outcome for the good of the church. That's not foolproof, of course. I'm not saying that that kind of councils of the Presbyterian church always get things right. We certainly don't. Uh, But on balance, uh, we probably make less sinful and stupid decisions as if someone like me was responsible by myself. You see that there's a a benefit to having a whole group of leaders gather together. 
And now, of course, at, at the assemblies of the Presbyterian Church, uh, we don't have apostles like they have here in Acts chapter 15. They've got apostles and elders. But the assemblies of the Presby Church do have a group of elders who have believed the word of the apostles written down in the Bible and have been set aside by the church because they've been recognised to be able to teach the words of the apostles written down in the Bible. So this council in Jerusalem is a little bit like an assembly or council of the Presbyterian Church. One met a few weeks ago uh, just here in Melbourne. Now, obviously, all this fuss about gathering a whole group of people up in Jerusalem, that would have taken all sorts of time. I'm sure there were some people down in Antioch who were quite anxious about this teaching. We read later in the passage that they're really troubled and disturbed by it. Why not just move quick? Give a quick declaration and move on. Why bother with getting a whole group of people together? Well, because... In some situations, it's important to get the details right, to be clear and accurate. And to do that, you need to slow down. You need to thoroughly consider a question so you can provide clarity for the church. And that's what this council does. On the way to the council, if you see there in verse 3, Uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going up through past all these different churches, uh, sharing the good news of how so many Gentiles have been hearing the gospel and receiving God's spirit. Uh, And notice there in verse 3 that the, um, the news of these Gentiles becoming Christians made all the believers very glad. My God's people are overflowing with joy at the news of all these, notice, uncircumcised Gentiles coming to know Jesus. So there's a fair bit at stake with this gathering or assembly up in Jerusalem. It would have been a massive joy sapper for the church. Joy sapper for all these new Gentile Christians if the church had come down with the wrong answer. They went back to these people and said, well, you know how you thought you were accepted by God simply by trusting in Jesus? Well, you know, not so much. First, you've got to become Jewish, be circumcised and obey this particular set of rules. So there's a lot at stake with this gospel council. Verses 1 to 3, it's a gospel distortion that threatens to drive a wedge in gospel community to destroy gospel community. Thankfully, in verses 4 to 21, we've got a gospel council that preserves gospel clarity and protects gospel community. Take a look in verse 4. You'll see Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church. They're welcomed by the apostles and elders who've gathered together, and they report about all that God has done among the Gentiles. But then, as everyone's gathered together in verse 5, those new Jewish Christians uh, who still belong to the, or at least identify in some way with the Pharisees, uh, they stand up in the assembly and they say in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's the gospel distortion in summary. Jesus isn't enough. Also become Jewish. How will the council respond? Well, look in verse 6. They take time to consider the question. Now, that word consider is kind of related to a Greek word for seeing things. 
So I think Luke's saying that they took time uh, to truly see what was at stake with this matter, to try and see it clearly so that if they see it clearly, they just might be able to provide clarity for the church. That was the aim of their consideration, not just to sit around and have a chin wag and catch up with friends, but to provide clarity on the gospel. So they've taken some time to consider it. Then we have three speeches. The first one's from Peter in verses 7 to 11. And you'll notice that Peter addresses this distortion of the gospel by referring to his own ministry. Take a look in verse 7. Peter says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Notice how Peter's really, really clear that the inclusion of non-Jewish people, Gentiles, into God's people, uh, that wasn't something that was driven forward by him or any particular human leader. Whose choice was it? Peter says God made a choice. It was God who freely and sovereignly made a choice to include non-Jewish people amongst his people. I think back to the events of Acts chapters 10 and 11. Peter's saying, all brothers, all of you in this assembly know that this whole thing was driven by God. In Acts chapter 10, who was it who gave a vision to Cornelius, telling him to summon Peter from Simon's house up in Joppa? It was God. It was God who gave Peter a vision, telling him to go down to Cornelius' house and share the gospel with them. All of this was driven by God. So as Peter says in verse 8, God, who knows the heart, this is what Alex was reading before, uh, showed that he accepted the Gentiles by giving uh, giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Remember that receiving the Holy Spirit is the key mark of being included into God's family, welcomed into God's family. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that it's the the Holy Spirit that uh, is sometimes called the spirit of sonship, uh, the spirit that that teaches you that you're a child of God, uh, that enables you to cry out to God uh, as your loving Heavenly Father. So Peter's saying clearly the Gentiles, by receiving the Spirit, have been welcomed into God's family. They've been accepted by God. So it seems clear to Peter, if you look in verse 9, Uh, that God did not discriminate between us and them, that is, between Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Through Peter, the Gentiles had heard the gospel, they'd received the gospel, they'd received God's spirit, and all of that, for Peter, makes it abundantly clear that God is not treating the Gentiles any differently to the Jews. He's not discriminating between them. Jews and Gentiles both are having their hearts purified by faith, purified by faith in Jesus' death on the cross, purified by receiving the gift of God's spirit that makes us clean on the inside. Jews and Gentiles are exactly the same, Peter says, when it comes to being saved. So Peter concludes in verse 10, Now therefore, or now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke uh, that uh, neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear. Uh, This yoke, what's this yoke? It's the yoke of God's law. Uh, The yoke of feeling that you need to obey every detail of God's law 
before you can be accepted by God and his people. That's the yoke that Peter's talking about. And he's saying that we and our ancestors, that's the Jewish people, we have never, we have never been able to carry that yoke. In that, we've never been able to perfectly tick all the boxes. We've never been able to jump through every hoop. We've never been able to perfectly obey every law. So if we were never able to do it, Peter's saying, why would you now want to place that yoke upon these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? No, Peter says. Look at verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, the very heart of the gospel is at stake in this assembly. It's not just a boring business meeting, like I've had some Prezi assemblies, that parts of which are like that. And this, is a, this is a moment where the gospel is at stake. Is salvation actually a gift that you receive by faith in Jesus, giving you deep assurance and confidence that you're always accepted by God and his people, or is salvation a never-ending ladder that you've got to climb, a, a massive set of rules are leaving you constantly unsure if you're accepted by God and his people. Which is it? A gift to receive or a burden to carry? Peter's saying this gospel council should be crystal clear about the details on this. Salvation is a gift, he says. It's by grace to be received simply by trusting in Jesus. So that's Peter's speech. And then in verse 12, oh, let's, just briefly, the concern for these uh, mainly predominantly Jewish leaders is let's not place the burden of God's law upon people when they trust in Jesus. Uh, we don't have time to unpack all of this, uh, but when people become Christians uh, here at DPC or in, the 20, in 21st century Australia, I think we're unlikely to say uh, to place the burden on them of being circumcised and following some Jewish customs. But you might want to chat about this later on. What other burdens might we place upon people? Do we say to people, yeah, kind of believing in Jesus is enough, but you've also kind of got to develop our way, you've got to go along with our way of worshipping God. Or you've got to develop this, you've got to kind of buy into this particular way of dressing or listening to this particular music or whatever it is. You know, we've got to be careful about this whole thing of adding to the gospel, putting additional burdens upon people. You can talk about that more later on or maybe in your GCs during the week. Anyway, in verse 12, it's Paul and Barnabas' turn. They stand up, they talk about their ministry among the Gentiles uh, in particular, about how God has enabled them to perform all sorts of signs and wonders amongst the Gentiles. Now, you remember, uh, if you weren't here last week, you can flick back to Acts chapter 14, verse 3, uh, and you'll see in Acts 14, verse 3, that the purpose of these wonders uh, is to confirm Paul and Barnabas's words. So I think what Paul and Barnabas are saying is if God didn't want the Gentiles to believe our words and be saved and become a part of his people, then why did he enable us to perform all these wonders amongst them? You see, God only gives these wonders where he's particularly concerned that a new group of people might hear and believe his words. I think that's what Paul and Barnabas are saying. And then after Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's James's turn, the Apostle James, uh, he stands up uh, in uh, verses 13 and 14 
Uh, He essentially agrees with Peter. Notice that word intervention. He's saying that the fact that the non-Jewish people have been included in God's people uh, is all driven by God intervening into history. It's God who's done this. It's God who's included them in. It's him who intervened. He intervened because he wanted a people for himself, a people for his name. What does that mean, a people for his name? In the Bible, God's name refers to the full beauty and glory of who he is, the fullness of his character. If you want to, you can jot down Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God reveals his name. It's the full glory of who he is. So this is God's purpose in intervening in history and wanting to include people from every nation into his people. It's so that people from every nation would see the full glory of who he is, would see just how gracious and good and generous and kind and merciful and compassionate and just, like everything about who God is, that people from every nation would see that. And James is saying God has intervened in recent times to begin that mission. And in verses 15 and 18, James points out, 15 to 18, he says, well, that might have been a bit of a surprise to us, but it shouldn't have been. Because it's exactly what God promised to do. And he proves that by quoting, uh, there's lots of things he could have quoted, but he quotes from Amos chapter 9, uh, verses 11 and 12. Amos 9, 11 and 12. Uh, Amos was a prophet who uh, did his ministry about 800 years before Jesus came along. Uh, He was ministering primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel right before they were going to be conquered and taken into exile. Maybe that's a a bit of interesting context, but because he's saying in these verses, uh, in these verses, God's promising through Amos that after that time of exile, what's he going to do? He's going to return, and notice those words, rebuild David's fallen tent. Now, if you've not kind of been very familiar with the big story of the Bible, that might seem a bit odd. But what God's promising to do here is to rebuild the throne of King David, the house of King David. That's a picture for his fallen tent. It's the throne that God promised in places like 2 Samuel 7 was going, to be, was going to go on forever. David's kingdom would never end. And yet, soon after the ministry of Amos, it's going to lie in ruins. And God's saying here, uh, in the future, I'm going to send a descendant of David and he's going to rebuild David's kingdom. He's going to rebuild David's fallen tent. And notice in verse 17, why is God going to do that? Why is he going to rebuild his kingdom with a descendant of David sitting on the throne? It's so that, verse 17, the rest of mankind might seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. That's God's purpose, James is saying. He's saying, hey, we know that Jesus is that promised descendant of David, the one who's from the line of David. We know that he is God's king, the one who's come to rebuild and restore God's kingdom on earth. So it's no surprise in light of passages like Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 uh, that right after Jesus comes, uh, we would have all the nations being included into God's people. Uh, That people from uh, all mankind would be seeking after the Lord, even all the Gentiles. 
lives. Now, I don't know, uh, but James must have sensed that that was a bit of a mic drop moment in the assembly. It's kind of like case closed. Uh, Because he moves straight on, maybe it's a little bit presumptuous of him, uh, but he moves straight on to giving his verdict on the matter. And it's the verdict that ultimately becomes the verdict of the whole council. Uh, So you notice in verse 19 uh, that James preserves gospel clarity. He's really clear, isn't he? He says, uh, it is my judgment, therefore, uh, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying, he said, we shouldn't add anything to Jesus. We shouldn't give the Gentiles extra hoops to jump through or extra burdens to carry or boxes to tick, hurdles to jump, you know, whatever picture works for you. We should simply be crystal clear that receiving the grace of God by trusting in Jesus is enough. We shouldn't make it difficult for them. It's a great moment of gospel clarity in the early church. But having provided this gospel clarity, James also wants to be careful to protect gospel community. Uh, So in verse 20, if you take a look there, uh, he says the Gentiles should abstain from these four practices. Those practices seem a little bit odd to our ears because we haven't grown up in a Jewish community, most of us, and surrounded by Jewish law and customs. Uh, But the intention of James here is to protect the the new community that exists between the new Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So let me briefly just say what these four practices are. The the first, food polluted uh, from idols. Uh, That's food that would have previously been offered uh, in a pagan temple uh, before an idol. And for a first century Jewish person who'd become a Christian... Uh, they would have felt that any Gentile who ate that food uh, would have been ceremonially unclean. That they were someone who who you really should avoid spending time with. Sexual immorality uh, refers to all sorts of forbidden sexual relationships, uh, probably ones that are summarised in Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, These are relationships uh, that left anyone involved with them ceremonially unclean. And they had to go outside the camp of Israel. You you couldn't have community with them. Uh, The meat uh, from strangled animals, that's from Leviticus 17. And that's meat that hadn't been killed in the right way. You know, the the people of Israel were supposed to drain all the blood out of there. Sorry if that's a bit gory for you. Uh, But they had to drain all the blood. Uh, But this is meat that hasn't been killed in the right way. And it's just been eaten without that process. A first century Jew who'd become a Christian wouldn't be able to sit at a table with a Gentile who'd eaten such meat. Likewise, eating blood. That's also covered in Leviticus 17. Anyone who ate blood, which God had provided to make sacrifices to him to cover sin, anyone who ate blood was ceremonially unclean and they were to be avoided. Now, this list of four practices is a bit confusing because of that one sexual immorality. I've just got to be clear uh, that sexual immorality remains something that all Christians in every time, uh, in every time and place should abstain from. Right? So in that sense, it's in a slightly different category to the other three things, uh, which the, Gentile, the new Gentile Christians are probably only needed to abstain from for a limited period of time. But what these four practices have in common is that all of them, to the mind of a first century Jew who's becoming a Christian, would have left the Gentiles ceremonially unclean 
And that just would have made it really, really hard to have community with them, to share meals together, to hang out together. So James is calling these new Gentile Christians not to abstain from these things, to earn their acceptance with God, but to abstain from these things out of love for their new Gentile brothers and sisters. And to be mindful about the fact that they've got to disentangle themselves from some of their Jewish traditions and customs. And so it would be great for the sake of protecting gospel community if they could abstain from these things out of love. So I reckon this gospel council's done a pretty good job. They've preserved gospel clarity and in the process they've protected gospel community. In verses 22 to 25, they've got to let people know about that. They've got to communicate some decisions. Uh, So that's what they do. Uh, There's a lot of repetition in this section. Uh, I just want you to notice uh, four things about how they, or sorry, two broad things about how they communicate. Uh, The first is they send people. Do you notice that in verse 22? Uh, They don't just send a letter. They send people with the letter. And I've got to say, in in recent months and years, um, mostly by making a whole bunch of mistakes, I reckon the leaders at DPC have learned a bit about this, Uh, that when you've made a a group, a a decision together, uh, it's not enough to just kind of send a letter to people because actually communicating the decisions of a group of leaders is more than giving clear information. It's about loving and serving and, and caring for real people. And so we haven't always got that right. But I've got to say, I've been really encouraged and challenged by some of the lessons we've learned. And we have a real desire to have that personal touch in communicating decisions from the leadership of our church. And I think this council models that. They send people, including people, that the Gentiles down in the church in Antioch knew pretty well. But with those people, they also send a detailed letter It's not enough to just go and hang out with people. You've actually got to answer their questions. You've got to provide clear information. And that information is detailed in the letter in verses 23 to 29. I notice four things. This is where the four things comes up. Four things about the letter, real brief. First, in verse 23, this is a letter, remember, that's coming from the who's who of leadership in the early church, you know, the apostles and elders, And yet, in verse 23, there's no sense of a letter coming down from on high. The letter comes from brothers in Christ. There's a real sense of equality about this. Second, you notice in verse 24 that the leaders of this council uh, take a moment to show that they've really understood and heard why this situation has been so hard for these new Gentile Christians. In fact, you can see there in verse 24 that it it really grieves them that some of their own number, mind you, who weren't authorised by them, but some of their own assembly have been causing trouble and disturbing these new Christians. So they want the Gentile Christians to know that they've heard that and understood what they've been going through. A third, in verse 28, they provide clarity on the gospel Simply trusting in Jesus is enough. There's no additional burdens that you need to fulfill. And fourth, in verse 29, they urge them to abstain from those four things to protect their community uh, with their Jewish brothers and sisters. How will the Gentile Christians receive this letter and the people that have come? 
In verses 30 and 31, the letter's delivered. And wonderfully, the Gentile Christians who'd previously been disturbed and troubled are encouraged and filled with joy. Preserving gospel clarity protects gospel community. But the end of the passage is a bit sad, isn't it? Verses 36 to 41. Because we see there that even where there's real clarity on the gospel, gospel community can still break. Verse 36. Luke reports that sometime later, Paul came to Barnabas and said to him, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're going. Uh, You might remember that from the moment uh, that Paul first arrived in Jerusalem after becoming a Christian, uh, he and Barnabas have been really dear friends uh, and they've shared a real deep partnership in the gospel. Uh, At the end of Acts chapter 9, when everyone else was afraid of Paul because they didn't know if he was a real Christian or not, they didn't want to welcome him into the church, it was Barnabas who stuck his neck out and introduced Paul to the church leaders. When Paul was looking for a companion on his first missions trip, it was Barnabas who went along with him. We heard about that last week. Through Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And they endured a whole lot of suffering and persecution along the way. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has to stand up before this assembly in Jerusalem. Who is it who's by his side to defend the truth of the gospel? It's Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were dear friends partners in the gospel. Paul and Barnabas shared the same clarity on the gospel and they had shared in deep and wonderful gospel community. And yet in verses 37 and 38, everything goes pear-shaped. You see there in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't wanted to continue with them in the work. Maybe getting a bit of a sense of what Barnabas and Paul are like. Barnabas is a real encouraging type. You know, he wants to persevere with John Mark. He wants to give him a second chance. Paul's perhaps a little bit more ambitious and driven and uh, doesn't want to kind of dead weight like John Mark on his next missions trip, so he wants to cut him loose. You know, he didn't persevere in the work. He's lagging behind. And in verse 39, they have such a a kind of massive argument about this uh, that they agree it's best for them to go their separate ways. You see, usually preserving gospel clarity does protect gospel community. Uh, That's a wonderful thing. The council's done that uh, in in Acts chapter 15. Uh, But this side of heaven, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Because our lives are full of sin and weakness and our personalities are different and we've got all sorts of different limitations and different seasons of life and ministry. And so sometimes even brothers and sisters in Christ who have the same clarity on the gospel, who have real love and affection for one another and who've been through a whole lot together disagree so vigorously that they agree that it's time for them to go their separate ways. But I know that if you've been around DPC for a while, you've probably experienced this. Not just DPC, but any Christian community. I'm not saying this is not really painful. It is really painful. 
And I'm not saying it has to last forever, right? It doesn't last forever for Paul and Barnabas. Later on, they reunite. And we know it won't last forever because in heaven, gospel community will be perfect between brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for that. But while we live our lives in this world, it is a reality. Preserving gospel clarity protects gospel community, but gospel community is still fragile. You have to work hard at it. And sometimes even when you work hard, it doesn't work out as you might have hoped. Well, I hope uh, you've been persuaded, uh, as we've looked at Acts chapter 15, that some details really do matter. Uh, Sometimes it's perfectly fine uh, to say to a Presbyterian minister, Aaron, it's time to loosen up. You know, those details don't matter. It's okay if the minutes aren't perfect. You know, like, it's okay to say that. It's okay to say it'll be okay. The, The sky won't fall in. But other times it's really important to get the details right. And the truth of the gospel is one of those times, isn't it, where it's important to have razor-sharp clarity on the truth of the gospel because preserving gospel clarity does protect gospel community. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this great moment uh, in the early church in Acts chapter 15 uh, where a group of leaders gathered together uh, to consider thoroughly... uh, how they could preserve the truth of the gospel and be really clear about it. And we thank you, Father, that they got it right and that in the process they were able to protect the new community that existed between uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians. And we pray, Father, for us as a church that we would be uh, always striving to be clear on the gospel, uh, that we might protect the community that exists between us because of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would comfort those who uh, grieve where gospel community has broken. Uh, Please minister to them in uh, in your mercy. And, Father, we look forward to eternity where brothers and sisters in Christ will always be at peace with one another. Uh, For all of our sin will be done, done away with and we'll just be able to love and enjoy one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.